Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going? It's you? going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in, hit the subscribe button. Check out all the content we put out there on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com. Uh, best place to get access to everything we do is my Twitter, at uh, Focused Compound. Uh, and hit the subscribe button wherever you are watching us. So, and I guess I got to plug QuickFS. Go to quickfs.net to get access to uh, the software that we use to pull 20-year financial data. We use it every single day, and we also use it on the podcast as well to demo out everything we talk about. Uh, so if you want to look at what we look at, go to quickfs.net, sign up, and tell them that you came from Focused Compounding. Somebody left a comment on uh, one of our videos that they don't think my heart rate ever gets below hummingbird level. Oh. And they didn't think that yours ever gets above 40 beats per uh, minute. Yeah. So that, we're kind of like, <laughs> it you know, works out a little, a little different right there. Yeah. So Hopefully we, we it meet in the middle. Out. I think, yeah. I think we meet in the middle, but I actually laughed out loud when I read that. Um, so in today's podcast, we are going to talk about, you know, we, I'm always tweeting out different things, like different sort of checklists. Uh, you ran up different checklists for investors. I think mm -hmm. a lot of beginners, but also other people as well. It's good to kind of go through like, you know, checklists of, okay. you know, the investing processes and stuff like that. And somebody actually emailed me going over our something that I don't know if I tweeted it out or it came from one of the blog posts or something okay. like that. But I could tell it came from us. And he pretty much was asking some questions on it. So I thought it would be good to, you know, kind of go back and revisit this. And I guess, just talk about, you know, different things in this list. Um, and, you know, this I think came from we we're talking about 100 baggers and he referenced okay. 100 baggers. Let's just say this is for 10 baggers, okay? To get to 100, you first need to be I like a to 10 think bagger. In terms of 10. We've talked yeah. about that before, yeah. Um, uh, you can do it twice. It's a lower yeah. hurdle to, to go. Be a after. 10 bagger twice, that's 100. Correct. Same yeah, thing. There you go. There you go. Um, uh, yeah, but first you got to hit that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the first thing on the list is is it a small enough stock? And right. I don't remember the exact questions that he had, but I do know, okay, does it need to be a very small stock? There are companies that have been, you know, um, call it, you know, 300 million or a billion that over time have become very valuable companies. You know, why is that the first thing that is on the list? I mean, of course, it's the area that we typically specialize in. And, right. you know, as our asset base has grown, we, we, right. we're going to have to shift and we have had to shift. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at, I guess you could say, you know, Microsoft or Apple or something like that kind of scale. Um, if you were looking for a hundred bagger, let's say, or ten bagger, then yeah, it, it could you could have at ten or twenty billion. So not a small company. Mm -hmm. um, but you can tell that there's only a small number of companies that ever get to the size of, you know, let's say a hundred billion. So use your hundred bagger, your ten bagger example. If you can count the number of companies that are over a hundred billion, you can run a screen to see how many there are in the U.S. Um, those companies to be 100 baggers would have had to be a billion or less under they would have had to be under a billion at that time to be 10 baggers under 10 million so you know virtually all of them will have to be smaller than that size um i know this one disappoints people they want to be able to find the the, the 100 bagger or whatever that's yeah. already at 1 billion or 10 mm -hmm. billion dollar company um but yeah they would be rare if they're that size already i was gonna say do you think more companies go from call it a hundred million to 10 billion instead of, you know, a billion to a hundred billion. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we can also see that in terms of uh, the way that market caps are distributed. Um, so actually by the, depending on how you define a micro cap, um, almost uh, most stocks at any given point will be a micro cap. 
Mm-hmm. So in terms of the market, most investors' money is, you know, uh, they have a small percentage in microcaps. They might have 5% of their their um, their money in microcaps. But those microcaps as individual stocks are accounting for more than 50% of the um, number of stocks out there. So in terms of the number of opportunities, I'm not saying they're all good. It doesn't say anything about whether they're good or bad, but it just says that there's more of them. So mm-hmm. there's just more uh, choices that you could have there. So, you know, it's kind of like saying... Um, you know, if we're saying who, who would have the big, you know, um, who would be, have the biggest increase in their uh, fame or something, if we go by actors in, uh, that you can name already, um, that's not as good a pool because they're already pretty famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it does work out that way, and it will in a few cases. But in many more cases, there's lots of people that you vaguely know that actually will be the right answer. And so it's more likely to be a company that, yeah, that's smaller that you vaguely know because there's a lot more of them. Sure. It'd be interesting. And, and it's sometimes when we you know, are having these conversations live on the podcast, I'm like, wow, that would be a pretty interesting study. I would like to see. So, for example, go to the book Hunter Baggers, right? Mm-hmm. Or 101 in Stock Market. That's another book that's kind of dedicated to this topic. Or yeah. It is dedicated. And in both of those books, they list a lot of companies that have been 100 baggers. Mm-hmm. Um, so 1 to 100. And it'd be interesting to see the evolution of the company from the early days to where it was when it hit that 100 bagger status and how much the company had changed. So right. did they eventually grow into something else? Is it mm-hmm. still very much the same line of business? Like what happened in between for them to get there? Yeah. Like the actual business, like the products, what they're doing, et cetera. Right. We, we could definitely look at that. I, I remember looking at a few and kind of figuring it out. So uh, the ones that nothing changed and they hit it big and were a big success were uh, drug companies mm-hmm. of the like biotech type sure. variety and uh, mining and oil. Okay. So they already had the asset. And then uh, it turned out they developed it, and it turned into a big hit. I mean, right. Monster Beverage would probably right. be very similar. So that's the other Same one. thing. They just it can be one brand. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's the one that you can have, right? Uh-huh. Um, there's a few retail things that just expanded across the country. Those are kind of the Peter Lynch type things where he talks about, you know, um, whether it's La Quinta or Taco Bell or uh, whatever, something that he sees that he thinks, okay, this can go across the country, you know. Um, there's those, and then there's others that are, you know, would be capital allocation things that you'd never predict. Um, that'd be hard to predict. And then there's others that grow into markets that you wouldn't know the market was as big at the time. So, you know, obviously if you thought, okay, um, you know, uh, if you thought, you know, that every personal computer is going to have a Microsoft operating system, that would have been a really big market, but it wouldn't have been anywhere near what it turned out to be because you have underestimated, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, household demand and things for that for private computers as opposed to um, servers and things like mm-hmm. that. But the perfect example, I mean, look at Berkshire. It grew into something completely different. Yes, and those are very, very unusual. It happens with yeah, the very how do you handicap that? Right, based on that person um, and being able to do that. People are always looking for the next Berkshire Hathaway. Mm-hmm. There are some examples. There you know, there have been more in the conglomerate era and stuff like that. And there are some, I mean, there are really some examples. I mean, they kind of changed what they did. But if you go read books about, um, you know, uh, let's say Ted Turner, Sumner, Redstone, people like that, it developed out of something totally different into mm-hmm. a big company, Rupert Murdoch. Um, in some cases, the stock's you know, um, did well, but not as amazing because like Rupert Murdoch or something, there was a lot of debt used and then also shares issued and stuff like that. But still, of course, you're going out very, very rich. Mm-hmm. Um, next one on our list is the multiple low enough. Yeah. 
and a good way, you know, you could screen out a lot of things as well is you could invert and, you know, the inversion to that would be is the P too high to avoid multiple contraction uh, while you own it. Yes. So if you're going to buy something at 40 times earnings or 50 times earnings, are you factoring in multiple contraction? Yeah. And when you talked about to the- more of a normal market multiple, you know, call it whatever you want to call it. I don't know, normal nowadays, but, you know, less than 40 and 50. Yeah. When you talked about 100, 100 baggers. I think from what I remember of what he talked about, number he talked about was kind of like 50 to 60 PE, being that a 50 to 60 PE, that kind of thing, something with a 50 PE, um, could have a really high PE and might not be something you want to overlook, but you don't want something that has really higher PEs than that. Those aren't the kinds of things that we would be looking at. Um, generally, those are very high PEs. So I guess what he was saying is that his point wasn't that it has to have a low PE, certainly. Uh, everyone would always perceive a, a 50 PE, even in days gone past, a 30 PE, but you know, a 40 or 50 PE as being high. Um, but it's not the same as paying ridiculous prices for, uh, versus something. So you know, things like Starbucks and stuff had high PEs throughout mm-hmm. their growth phase, yeah. Um, three, does it grow fast enough? So obviously yes. you need growth. And you're... you can do the math on that. Mm-hmm. So how fast do you want your um, 10 bag or your 100 bagger? Um, you know, if, if it grows at 7%, then it's going to be about, um, you know, that you're going to have doubling every 10 years that way. So you can use the rule 72 kind of approach. Mm-hmm. We talked about 240. Um, that's an easy way to do it. So, you know, if you want a 10 bagger that's only growing at 10%, then you're going to have to wait about a quarter century. Mm-hmm. So Jeff just inverted that. Is the growth rate too slow to ever produce a 10 bagger? Um, yeah. Number four. Now, this is something that we talked a little bit about with Investors Title Company, right? Is it self-funding? And that's very important for... I think that's critical. Now, there are some instances more recently where I guess we'll see. It may work out for some companies that they can turn into like 100 bag or something without having been self-funding. But historically, if you look at the history of business, it's very hard mm-hmm. to have um, a lot of... To create a really big fortune without being self-funding. Self-funding from retained earnings. Yeah. Of the company. Now, we did talk about some of the examples where they aren't. Mines, mm-hmm. oil fields, uh, biotech. Not self-funding. If you hit it big, you so, so a few things have to happen. So one, you have to have a long enough runway that you can somehow raise money from outsiders and dilute and borrow money and all of that. Uh, to the point where then you can have a big success and then you can keep enough of that. And so those are the sorts of things that you see with people trying to do that, you know, Chesapeake Energy or something. Um, you're relying on borrowing a lot of money and uh, for a very long phase. And sometimes it's very, very long, then um, then it can become a problem. I'd say most companies uh, that have been successful historically, even tech companies or whatever that people think of, became self-funding much earlier than a lot of investors think. Um, we've talked about some that, you know, worry me or whatever about, um, that they haven't made a profit for a really long time, haven't generated cash flow from operations and people compare them to, you know, Amazon and Facebook and whatever. Um, those companies were actually generating cash flow from operations relatively fast compared to any of the things that we talk about today that way. Do you think it's interesting? I think like a simple heuristic, I'm kind of curious to get your opinion on it. so a lot of companies in our world, for example, more of the overlooked space, they don't have any analysts that follow mm-hmm. the companies. And I wonder, do you think in that space, there tend to be more self-funding type of companies? Because companies, you know, that are micro caps, for example, that may have yeah. analysts following it, it's probably because they need extra sources of sure. capital to, to no, fund. If, if you don't have any analysts following you and you're not... Um, 
turning a, a cash profit, yeah. you'll go bankrupt. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, because otherwise they'd be covering you because they'd, they'd want um, to do deals. Yeah. So if you can't interest anyone in deals, uh, you better become self-funding right away. Yeah. yeah. If you have a private business, they better become self-funding a lot faster. Um, it, you did, people didn't see, but you actually laughed like halfway through my, uh, <laughs> my question because I think you knew exactly where I was going yeah. with it. Yeah. Um, and you can tell when there's a lot of analysts covering something that there's they're interested that. in mm-hmm. yeah, in doing a deal. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I mentioned DreamWorks Animation before. They covered by a ton of companies in part because they covered other entertainment things, but in part because they knew M&A activity and movie studio stuff mm-hmm. is bound to happen. And it was a big, you know, a big deal that eventually, it, eventually DreamWorks will be resolved in some big uh, M&A thing. Yeah. Hmm. Now, it doesn't need to be entirely self-funding, though. I mean, there are companies that we own that use debt, leverage. Oh, I, I'm not, so I you, have nothing so against. referring to shares. No, I have absolutely nothing against financial leverage. Mm-hmm. I think I've, I've kind of, uh, I give the feeling to people that I'm opposed to using financial leverage and things like that. I'm not. I'm warning about two things. One, if you're, self, if you're not self-financing, then you're relying on the kindness of strangers, basically. And so, you know, when you read those books that I've suggested about, like, you know, banks that failed or energy things or whatever, that there was a boom and bust. And they say things like, if we only could have made it a little longer, we would have made a lot of money and stuff. Sometimes that's true. But you didn't make it long enough because it was all bank money you were using. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, and if you had not been using bank money, if you've been using all your own money, you never would have gotten to that size. But you also would have survived, um, you know, at that point. And so that's, you know, one part of it. The other part of it is, uh, yeah, issuing shares and all that that we talked about. Now, if you have a big owner of the company from early on, they're not likely to want to issue a lot of shares that way. But if they're reluctant to issue a lot of shares, then they may have to borrow a lot. And if they borrow a lot, then there can be a real disconnect between um, the interests of the creditors and the interests of investors that way. Now, some companies, you could argue, can't be self-funding and stuff. And the um, this gets complicated. Like, if you read Cable Cowboy, you know, the argument's going to be that they used a lot of uh, debt. They did use a lot of debt. But there's reasons for why you would do that. So one is financial things, just financial engineering. So that was like the John Malone reason. But the other reason why you would do it, this is why cruise uh, lines did it and others have done it, uh, there's advantages to scale. And as particularly there's advantages, as there are in many industries, to relative scale. And that's the particularly scary one. So if there's a relative scale advantage, you have a problem, which is if you grow slower than your competitor, your competitor will start to have high relative market share. If their relative market share is higher, then they may have economies of scale on a unit basis that are better than yours. And eventually you'll have problems like you'll be paying more for programming than they are and stuff. So in the long run, you'll fail by not using debt. It isn't really the case that you can grow your business as fast as you want to, uh, but you have to actually grow your business incredibly quickly. Uh, so even things like cruise lines and cable companies, while generating a fair amount of cash flow from operations at times, the the each subscriber was quite valuable. Uh, there was a strong incentive to grow as fast as possible. I, the one I mentioned before is like um, when I, someone was asking about Netflix and their approach and stuff years ago. Um, I was saying I wasn't opposed to them not uh, reporting a profit because if I was running Netflix, there's no way I'd report a profit. Uh, you got to get big as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. That was the only way they were ever going to survive mm-hmm. doing what they do. Yeah. Because you're a middleman, yeah, you know, sure. on both sides that way, uh, you know, in terms of your programming costs and in terms of the audience that you're serving, it, you had to, you didn't want to be the second biggest um, independent streaming service. You want to be the biggest because um, all, all your suppliers are people who don't want you in business, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. 
Um, five, is the industry within one of your areas of expertise? Probably the most important item on this list. Yeah, so I think for me, this is really important, right? I think most kinds of things uh, people would think, it's, it's sort of like the peer learning thing. People naturally for every reason think that the next big thing or whatever will be in something they know nothing about. Yeah. Right. And, and I see, do, I do see a lot of pushback on this, like on Twitter and stuff with Buffett's like, uh, you know, circle of competency and stuff like that, because people say, well, how are you learning? How are you continuing to learn if you're don't ever well, step outside your circle of competency? He has yeah. learned, you know, he, he, he bought season. So then he bought Coca-Cola, you know, mm-hmm. um, he became an expert on insurance. I mean, eventually he bought Gen Re. He got involved in insurance with Geico and stuff because Ben Graham just owned some of the company because he had done it as a deal that made financial sense. Ben made sense for Ben Graham, so Mm -hmm. he learned everything about insurance. Um, But what we talked about with Buffett is like he actually owned an insurance company. He actually owned a bank. He actually owned a brand uh, like Seize Candy. So who would know it better than that than someone who actually owned those things and had someone, the CEO of that company, reporting to him? Mm-hmm. Then you learn about a lot about it and understand it. This is where I talk about um, Man for All Markets and, uh, and Fortune's Formula, too, uh, the Ed Thorpe stuff. Um, I think where they talk about the Kelly formula and all that that you can get into on in terms of bet sizing and all that, one of the most important parts of that is the idea of having an edge and, and if you really learn about that stuff, about what it was developed for is information stuff. But having an edge in terms of the interpretation of information that you have better information than other people. Why are you going to have better information? It's not going to be through insider trading and having access to a private wire, which is the kind of theoretical example of that. You have a hot uh, tip on a horse or something. How do you know? Um, uh, you know, what's the minimum amount of information that you need to know there too? And how much should you bet? Because you don't know the information is 100% good. Um, in those cases... Now, how can you have an edge over versus other people? It's probably the soft stuff, not the financial data, the hard stuff that you would see. And mm-hmm. so it's by better understanding that business model, I think. So soft signs meaning what? Understanding how the economics of that business work. Um, understanding, uh, as an example, right? I, I mentioned DreamWorks Animation. DreamWorks Animation, let's say you're looking at a pure movie studio and you've never looked at movie studios before. Okay, they have a couple of flops in a row. All right. Is that random? Because they only release a couple movies a year. Mm -hmm. So if you have a terrible year, is that because you randomly had two flops? Or is there something creatively wrong there that things in pipeline that are coming out now have been in the pipeline for four years and we're in for a period of really bad creative output from a studio? Those are two completely separate things. Mm -hmm. Two flops in a row could happen to any company. And statistically, the odds that that would happen is pretty high. So it's nothing to get worried about at all. Um if the issue is that the stuff that they're putting out now is creatively really poor versus what it was before, and it's because of changes in the organization over the years, which has happened in plenty of places, um, then you probably want out of the stock unless they can sell to someone quickly or something, you know, those are two completely different answers. It's important to know that we look at Disney being a hundred bagger or whatever. That's something that you need to know. Um, is it a few couple hits in a row or something when they have the strategy in the late eighties or nineties or whatever, or is it something that they have for a really long time or Pixar or, or any of those things? Mm-hmm. So you can see there's a really big difference and some people might say, oh, well, it's like, it's, you can't predict that. Right. But some people can, it's in their circle of competence mm-hmm. to other people. It's just, oh, it's a fad. It's a hit. It's just random. It's whatever, but it's not just the way that, you know, to some people it would be insurance or whatever it would be, oh, this is just random luck or something. 
But it's not if you understand those things about it and how it normally manifests itself in those industries. That's why sometimes you see a lot of CEOs, they're active stock pickers in their industry. Yes. So you if see they're that in the theme park industry, then maybe they're picking stocks <laughs> yeah. because they just understand their business. I would say that that's pretty common that yeah. I've seen. Yeah. I've, mm-hmm. I've talked about it a little bit where people talk about like insider trading and what it means, uh, you know, trading by insiders and what it means and all of that. Uh, and in my experience talking to people, from the other side, which is, okay, I know that you work for a public company or whatever. You know, when did you buy your public company and why did you do it? And who, what other stocks have you bought and stuff? It's actually the reverse of what most people expect, which is not that they had some information that other people didn't have. They had a feeling about the trends in the next three months to the next six months. It's actually that they had a really good understanding and really high confidence. And so when there was a dramatic price swing one way or the other in their stock, they thought, well, this is crazy. We're not yeah. worth twice what we were six months ago. Mm-hmm. Or they thought, this is crazy. We're not going out of business. Mm-hmm. I can tell we're not going out of business. You know, I've worked at a places before that were like this one and stuff. And so it's just, you know, the confidence that you have from that, of being in a particular industry or whatever. And we talked about that with like, you know, um, brands. A lot of that can tra- transfer over where you could predict that a brand would continue to be successful for a while. It's not perfect. None of these things are perfect. I mean, that's why I use examples trying to compare it to things like, um, uh, you know, things that people think are totally unpredictable. So a lot of people would think an energy drink is totally unpredictable um, in terms of being able to know what will be hot in the future or an alcohol brand or whatever, or what movies will be successful. But they're not. There's a science to it. Um, it's not something that people can predict perfectly, but neither is um, what's the right rate to set on insurance, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's just something that if you dedicated your life to one area or another, you would have more information on that and be able to make bets on that. Sure. And it's not as different as people might think in whatever industry that you're in. So if you're in food or beverage or in industries of uh, whatever things that way, and to some extent, it's the same with picking people. You know, as investors buying into a company that has a, some whatever person running it, you you know, there are probabilities involved in deciding what you think the odds are that they will do this or not do that and that they're a good bet or not. It's not that people are just completely um, something that you can't evaluate the same way you can evaluate a P.E. ratio. And so are they th- sort of things that you can become more in your circle of competence or whatever of evaluating those things? And Buffett's become really good at doing that. Uh, evaluating managers, having an idea of whether they'll stick around, having an idea of whether they're reckless or not, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, those sorts of things, and whether they understand competitive advantage and all that. Yeah. And mostly from the outside, you know, not without having to do a lot of interviewing of them. Uh, is it above average industry to be in long term? Yeah, that's another one that I would say is big for me yeah, very as important. compared to mm-hmm. companies positioning in the industry. Yeah. The growth rate of the industry. What else? So, they price takers. Capital intensity of the industry is probably the biggest factor. I mean, how much is it is it likely to generate in gross profits versus the net tangible assets is going to have to tie up in it. Mm-hmm. The biggest warning is is that you you want to be very cautious about highly cyclical industries that have to have very high net tangible assets versus um, profits that they could generate from that. Now, there's some that have been a success. Um, there will be examples in the hundred baggers that you'll find that there is an oil company and um, a, a mining company or whatever that has success with something doing that. But it usually requires putting in a lot of capital up front and then not knowing you know, how much money you'll make uh, after that. If you have it at a really low marginal cost, then it's gonna, you know, you're gonna be very successful, and you can make a fortune that way. Um, but in general, repeatedly making those bets are the tough part. And so, industries where there is a long history of poor profitability that way is a problem. Now, industries can get rationalized, 
And so if their problems especially are kind of more structural issues that I think are not um, as basic, like there were too many competitors in it and different things like that, um, they might be solvable. You know, taking the oil example, some of the way that they built some oil companies um, had in part to do with uh, greater integration of certain things and stuff. And so they actually made a lot of money in refining and things like that and distribute and uh, transportation and stuff like that. Um, but that there were problems that, you know, at other times uh, from excess competition and everything. And so that competition had to be eliminated one way or the other, either through consolidation or through actually surviving a period in which others went under. Um and so those sorts of things can be fixed. And we've talked about that before. You know, there are plenty of industries we've talked about, whether it's railroads, airlines, uh, lime, and things like that we talked about, where, you know, you can go back 40 years and see that the economics were uh, didn't look as good as they might look now. And they're, you know, sometimes it, that means the stocks work out or they don't, but there are hints that things are better. Um, and those things, industries can take a very long time to turn that way. Um, and that's always the argument when we talk about whether a company's cyclical or not. And I say, well, this looks, what worries me is this looks like it's cyclical, whatever sort of thing. Obviously, the people betting on it are betting, no, it's a change. The industry is going to become a good industry now. It was bad in the past because there was, you know, too much competition or something like that. And now it's consolidating or now something about the cycle is changing. And that's sort of the key argument between the, the bull and bear positions. Is this an above average company in that industry? Mm-hmm. Everything that we talk about. So have you read the book Good to Great? It's been a while. Okay. Yeah. The big thing about Good to Great, which I think you'll find, or maybe the, the key thing to think about is uh, it's very rare. <laughs> There's not a lot of Good to Great businesses. And some of the ones that might have gone from Good uh, to Great uh, then would have problems after that and whatever. So whatever people would think about uh, the other book by the same author, uh, Built to Last, um, that idea that things are born great or not, um, is more true than people might expect. I think a lot of investors might expect that you can take a so-so company and turn it around um, and have a lot of success with it. In the short term, if you get a good price on it, that's true, mm -hmm. right? So if you buy into a company that's that's kind of weak or whatever in an industry, but you get a really good price compared to other things in that industry, you can have a lot of success as a stock investor. But the big thing that I always see is like, people doing a comparison of two companies in the same industry and saying, well, if this company's margins are the same as that company's margins, and they kind of assume capitalism just magically is going to work to make the margins the yeah, same. Uh -huh. And I don't know why they think they're all going to be the same as the highest company's margins, mm -hmm. right? Wouldn't they be the same as like in the middle? Um, you know, It's not good for the modeling. Yeah, or if there was, you know, you know, there are some industries where it would be worse than that. It would be what, you know, what's the, at what point the, can you, would it actually be enough to take out supply of others, mm -hmm. you know? So it's going to be a lot worse than what the, you know, in a normal part of the cycle, what the margin in the middle is. It's going to be, what does it actually take to put some of these people out of business? That's how low the price could go, how bad the margins could get. But, um, yeah, so, you know, when we talked about Copart or whatever, if there's a spinoff of something, they're going to compare it to, to Copart, yeah. you know? If you have a food company or whatever, they compare it to the best food company that they can compare it to. Um, you know, the if you have a alcohol one, right, they're always going to compare it to whoever has the biggest margins in that. Uh, it's I always would like to use at least five different companies and use minimum, maximum, median. Um, you know, it's nice when you get a situation where you ha you're paying a minimum type price on a company, and only incorporating into that minimum type margins or whatever, you, you know, um, that's not normally how it works in the stock market. Usually you have to pay the highest price for the best business in the industry. So, you know, paying a below average price would be good. Um, but definitely you want, I think an above average 
player in the industry. Yeah, and that's what a lot of people ask where they're like, okay, well, if it's above average company, isn't that typically known by the market? Mm-hmm. Thus, you're paying a higher price for it or not getting a discount? Yeah, but that's what I said about the the Fortune Formula stuff about having an edge. You're only going to have an edge if you decide it's above average business when others don't. Um, I mean... It's like you want everyone to agree with you just a little bit later. A good example is uh, Nintendo lost money one year. They come out with the... Uh, uh, with, um, product after the Wii and stuff and uh, not so successful. And um, when they did that, they had reported losses for the first time in a very long time. Uh, they had a lot of IP. They had a lot of things that if you ask people around uh, which things were most popular and all that, obviously the trends at the moment were not good for Nintendo. Mm-hmm. But there's all sorts of things that you could look at and say that they had um, a resilient position compared to others in the industry. Um, a lot of goodwill built up. A lot of people would be willing to buy a product if they could put out a product that was as good as others that way. Um, and a lot of you know IP that they owned that they could use and all that stuff. So the question is like, is that a good enough industry? Uh, historically, pretty bad industry. But they had made a go of it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so then you just have to have a question of like, does this mean that it's going to get worse forever for them or not? And I feel might be kind of exaggerating and thinking that one flop is a problem, you know? So it's that kind of thing. The same thing with like Boeing and Airbus or whatever. They will have something where they have a disastrous project. Yeah. It goes way over budget. It doesn't launch when it's supposed to. Those sorts of things. That when you're asking, is there a point where you could get it at a good price? Well, evaluating whether it's above average business shouldn't depend on one project, right? I mean, maybe, but some people may read into that, that everything's going badly for them now. If there's negative coverage for years on a company, people might start to believe that it's not a good company. Mm -hmm. That was kind of my example with the movie studio thing. If they put out a few flops in a row, so you got a year or two of flops, to stock market investors, they're pretty short-term oriented. They can't wait around that long. They think that that will mean that there's a big change in the company or something like that. You know, same with cyclical type things or with insurers or banks or whatever. Goes a few years where their strategy, their approach doesn't get you as good results as someone else's approach, right? It looks like they have the wrong strategy. It may just be they have the wrong strategy for this point in the cycle. But most companies can't just switch their strategy every few years to be whatever's the best in the yeah. in the and, uh, cycle. And therein lies the opportunity for investors like us. Yeah. So when I say above average company in the industry, I do mean researching and understanding it like is progressive above average in underwriting not does progressives return equity this year higher than their competitors mm-hmm. their competitors might be higher this year if if they made a mistake um you know they that will happen and it, and is it a mistake that in some way isn't core to their like competitive advantage that they have that way if, Talk about banks a lot that way, like low cost of deposits and things like that. Like we're talking more durable sorts of things of above average. Not did they fail to jump on some sort of thing? Did they not make enough loans in this category that's growing really fast the last few years? You know, Mm -hmm. those sorts of things. I mean, I remember talking to someone and he said it was a few years after the uh, housing crisis, but they looked at the last five or so years of the company and said it hasn't grown for like five years. And I said, well, the last year there's 2008. So it didn't grow from like 2003, 2008. It was a bank. And I was thinking... Do you really want your bank to grow really fast from 2003 to 2008? Sure. Yeah. Um, but at the time, you would have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it still bothered me after that time that it wasn't a grower. Mm-hmm. So that shows you how strong the incentives are sometimes to do that. So I'm sure that there are people saying this is a below average bank in 2006. But was it a below average bank? You know. Or were they actually conservative? Right. And yeah. so when you're saying that, like, sometimes it you may have a – you can have a variant per, per, perception of, like, what is um, above average and below average in an industry. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes what people say is above average is just what's working right now. I mean, having the most marginal position in some commodity 
business is going to get you the best results in terms of huge increases in EPS. And you're going to look great in all sorts of ways in the year when you're in um, a real shortage in that commodity. But is that a strategy for the long term? And I think if you ask around in the industry, no one's going to tell you this is the best company in the industry, even though they have amazing profits this year because mm -hmm. there's a shortage in what they sell. And their cost structure is such that now their EPS has gone up a thousand percent. You know, investors could get fooled into that. But I think if you ask around the industry, most of the people won't say these are the best managers with the best, uh, you know, organization and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, eight, is the management team better than most? This definitely you can get into the, um, the in microcap land. I would say it's probably, yeah, it's, it's very, 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 very important. Microcaps, yeah, it's it's incredibly important. However, small and you know flat or whatever you want to call it, the organization, mm -hmm. it's going to ma matter more um, what management's doing there. Yeah, and so it's going to obviously matter a lot less, and how diverse it is, how diversified mm -hmm. it is, and so you know, it's it, like the business lines and stuff where they're getting their cash flow from. Yeah, I mean, it you know it can't matter as much as who's running. Berkshire Hathaway or General Electric or whatever, as it can, it can on capital allocation and some corporate decisions that way, but it can in terms of the strategies of individual business units or any of that. Um, and there's strong, you know, corporate values and sorts of things, not just in terms of the whole company, but in terms of each of those business units that, you, you know, is there, whether whatever the manager is doing. Um, we talked a little bit about that, like if it's a turnaround or something that's different, because then you kind of get a lot of leeway to really change the culture a lot. And it's almost mm -hmm. like it can be reborn. But absent that, you know, um, it's going to be your smaller companies where management's going to matter the most. What are your thoughts on related party transactions? Mm. Um, you see more of that, I would say, in microcap land. Yes. I mean, I think uh, I'd say that they do worry me generally, mm. especially when they're not necessary, that I don't understand why they would do it. Um, I think a lot of companies do it where I would say, why are you doing that? It, it's just something to steer clear of ever having that as an issue. Um, and I think there's not enough common sense applied by people who email me about it and stuff worrying about this transaction or this one looks okay this way. Um, it, it, it's like, are you taking advantage of these things? And so yeah. one of the examples I gave is like um, someone's, you know, brother-in-law is on the payroll doing a job that does not seem to be critical to the company sure right yeah. that they wouldn't have much use for it and they're paying them a couple hundred thousand dollars a year or something that might seem like a really small issue it's not as scary as certain other related party transaction things um that they have it's just a family member who's who's at the company and stuff but to me that kind of thing can be very worrying of what else it means well it's like a company. culture right right yeah but i've seen other ones where the, there's a company that's renting stuff um from the uh members of the family and stuff and uh when you look it up it's like, you know, if anything, below market type People rates. do get worried when they see stuff like that. A little but bit of like commingling and stuff. Right, but yeah. we should That's be able to tell. easy to verify, right? Yeah, and I, so the, the issue with that is, so for instance, in that case, there are cases where I could understand why you would do that. You have a very small business. The family controls most of everything. There are ways that I can get to understanding why uh, you rented part of something to them and paid them something for it. Uh, there are not so much as to why you have people at jobs that I don't think are real jobs, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And I think you can usually tell the difference between those when, when, when studying the related party transactions. Um, then there are other ones that are more complicated and it would depend on like, you know, how that would worry me because obviously through related parties and things, you can have a lot of fraud. A really good example 
is um, if you rely on one supplier and that supplier is basically a related party and that there's some uh, um, owner owns part of it or whatever, um, by doing that, that's a huge amount of your cash flows that pass through that. Um, depending on the company. And so that opens up all sorts of different risks mm. about fraud and things like that. The kickbacks, stuff like that. Yeah. But if you mean like that there's really a party thing because someone loaned money to the company at one time, um, like a note or something like that, that there was for, you know, a year, um, there are some very small companies where that would make sense. What about when you've, I've seen somewhere the CEO, they may own the building and then they lease it to the company. Yeah. Then you know, the company's paying them. Sure. So some of those, um, so what would be legitimate? What wouldn't? Um, a few things. One, I don't like to see, honestly, I really don't like to see when the, the, our, um, the owner owns a lot of another company in the same industry. That worries me, but it happens sometimes. So they're more like an investor who owns different companies in the same industry. Um, Cause then your incentives are all, you know, all over the place that way. Yeah. Um, but, what you're describing, you know, I think is not really justifiable usually. There may be some cases in which the activity of the owner in the industry predates the formation of the company. And then there's issues of how do we resolve this stuff, right? That's the only case where I can think of it being it. So the company was created later. And then the company was doing stuff that was related to the business that the owner was originally in. He started to devote all his time to that business. I've seen that. And then there's an issue of like, okay, now do I buy this thing? Do I buy the original store that you were in, the original restaurant or whatever that you had when the chain that has his name or whatever isn't the thing that you first started that has that, you know, then there could be issues mm -hmm. there where it makes some sense. It's still kind of worrying that way. Um, you would like them to kind of pull it all together and everything. But look at Berkshire Hathaway with um, before they pulled things together with, you know, blue chip and all and um, and diversified retailing and all that, where they would own, you know, different pieces and all. It was very complicated. Mm -hmm. and it's hard to figure out um, why. Why didn't they all just put it together? But it, once you have that happening, there's a lot of work in putting it all together. Um, I mostly am worried more about like the incentives of why. Um, they're doing things the way that they are. Mm -hmm. So are, are the incentives kind of to provide a lot of jobs for different members of the family, things like that. This wouldn't be under related party, but I once spoke with a CEO who he was paid, you know, whatever his $1.5 million a year salary, but he also had, it was like a million that was unaccounted for is what they called it, mm -hmm. where he could basically use on, you know, whatever, private jets, hotels, like stuff like that. Every yeah. Single year. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and some companies have things where it's sort of, they're, they're small items, but they're a little odd in terms of they they reflect a, um, culture where you get certain status things in terms of, uh, um, perks mm -hmm. that are purely there so that you have perks that are somewhat better than someone else at a different level and all of that. And you see that sometimes. Kind of reading about lights out. And the whole GE thing, remember yep. they would fly G's two planes really everywhere they went. Well, yeah, that. <laughs> but GE is a really good example that way, even in the continued things to Jack Welch and stuff, um, yeah. what he had. And yeah, uh, that that's a lot about the titles and about the perks that you get and all that. A lot of it doesn't make sense because they're so small versus the amount of actual salary that you're being paid that there's no need for that. Pay them a lot of salary and then have them buy their own stuff. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. No, I'm all for that. I'm, I'm fine with, uh, to some extent, I'm fine more with very large amounts of compensation than other people are that doesn't bother me as much sometimes so i've been asked about that i was asked about that with something where they were like does it bother you a lot this person makes all this money and i mean it they ins they insisted on or you know however they accepted uh 
a lot more money than justifiably they would ever need. Um, was it because the compensation committee told them, or a yeah, uh, the compensation committee or, uh, they, they appointed, yeah, 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 <laughs> right. um, consultants, consultants, told them. Yeah, yeah, there we go, there we go. That's what it was. Yeah. Well, the consultants told us that we should pay ourselves more. I'm sure they're in the the 49th uh, percentile or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I did look at it and say, look, um, I have to ask the question of whether the company's worth more or less without them. You know, would I rather someone else take one dollar a year? and replace this person then this person be paid 20 million or whatever and no i'd rather the person be paid 20 million because the danger by any random person of one dollar having said that do they really need to be i mean could they have gotten that for 10 million instead of 20 million probably um but usually i mean i can't think of cases where like paying someone too much is really as much as the problem as having the wrong person in the job mm-hmm I don't, you could argue is that a justification for paying any amount to have the right person in the job, but, and there's a lot of right persons. It's not like there's only one of them. There's a lot that you could have. Uh, Most companies should not rely that there can only be one person running it, but um, I would be very worried about having just any random person doing that. I've said that before with a few companies. um, We've talked particularly about banks, insurers and things, but also uh, I remember very clearly the one with uh, DreamWorks Animation. I would not have wanted any random uh, studio, you know, fired from some other studio i uh, had to be in charge of a uh, dreamworks animation mm-hmm. because there's just so few few people who had experience in running that kind of a business as opposed to being part of a much bigger live action thing so you just had a lack of enough people with knowledge of that industry and you know you could imagine the same thing i wouldn't like to you know someone was running some brand and now they're in charge of this insurance company that doesn't happen very often but you could imagine the, the problems that you have with that with management with some small companies it, you know microgap companies and things if you get the professional management can be really poor sometimes so you are sometimes a lot better off with family control and uh things like that or just like something that has much more connection of them as an owner control companies yeah because otherwise it can be very hard to have good management Mm -hmm. i'm not saying it can never happen but it's much harder to attract really good professional management of a very small public company um than it is at the much bigger public companies yeah and then our final one are you paying a below average price for this business yeah i think that's important mm-hmm. um which ties in is the multiple low enough um we talked a little bit about it being a good company right and uh, you know if it's a good company how often do you get an interesting opportunity to buy it at a below average price yeah i think I think you get some opportunities, but that's true. But, you know, we did the looking back at, like, um, Tractor Supply, you know, and it, it was largely a, a um, huge, you know, 10-bag or 100-bag or whatever, uh, in part because of having a very low for any sort of growth stock PE. So, I mean, you can do the math yourself with that. Um, the PE shouldn't be that much of a price if you think about it. If the PE is 100 instead of 20... That only cuts in five times into your, you mm-hmm. know, into your total return. If you're looking for a hundred bagger, that's not such a big deal. If you're looking for a ten bagger, you know that is. But um, but even if you're looking for a hundred bagger, you know you, you end up with something very different than what you were aiming for. Um, it does matter, and the math is pretty simple that way in terms of your exit multiple versus what you think is your your entry multiple versus what you think is normal as a way to exit. Mm-hmm. The big thing I see with most people talking to them is they kind of factor in that it will trade at the same PE it has in the past. That will not happen because although lots of people will recognize the business over time, 
If it's a fast grower, it will be a much slower grower later, which means that you have to factor in it having a PE ratio like others in the industry. Sure. So you're looking at an energy drink company. It's fine to factor in that it'll have, if it ha- stays high quality, the same sort of PE as Coke. It's not fine to assume it'll have a PE of a fast-growing company because once they get mature, they're no long, there aren't fast-growing companies because the overall segment isn't fast-growing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and all businesses eventually mature into slow-growing companies, you know? Um Public utilities were a fast-growing industry at one time. Car insurance was a fast-growing industry. So if the world goes all to electric cars, then there'll be one day when the electric car industry grows at a few percent a year. You mm-hmm. know, that happens to every industry eventually. And that's good. That means you're, that your business that you invested in was a huge success and everything, but it'll become a huge success and no longer a growth company. Mm-hmm. That's the end for all growth companies is eventually they become huge. They go from being small growth companies to being huge mature companies that don't grow anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, in that book, I think, higher multiples of 30 40 50 were okay um but that is a thing that i worry about and certainly in the ones that i've had success with we talked about activision multiple expansion is a huge part of that huge um a lot of the companies that we've invested in or you've invested in like multiple expansion did play when i give the example when i give the example of um yeah when i give the example of activision that was a hundred bagger with only um about uh maybe 12 to 15 times expansion in the size of the company so it expanded about 12 to 15 times it it grew it it was a 12 to 15 bagger as a company Mm -hmm. but it was a hundred bagger as a stock because the multiple expanded by like eight times or something Mm -hmm. and stayed expanded i don't mean just for a moment i mean it it expanded and didn't it never went back um so it was re-rated as a giant company at a multiple in terms of price to sales and and things like that that was very high so you can sometimes get five to ten times of your your return five to ten um uh, doublings of it just from that fact of you know the multiple you could imagine that that does not mean by the ones with the lowest PEs. obviously the ones with the lowest PEs on average have very poor growth prospects the um average very fast growing company probably has a very high pe mm-hmm. there will be some things where there's a reasonable pe and yet they grow a lot um that's the hard part about investing right this is where all the art art form comes in yeah but even when we talked about uh progressive and investor title insurance in the last 10 years they had like 10 times pe's or something and we're growing 10 percent or more a year it's not going to be the next thing that uh gets you a hundred bagger but honestly those are above average growth rates at below average prices Mm -hmm. so it should beat the market you know if you can find something that 10 times pe growing at 10 percent a year it's, it would be hard if you to be wrong about that for a really long time. Mm-hmm. You know that that should work out if you're right about the growth rate and you buy at that price. The only way you're not going to make money buying things that grow ten percent a year is if you pay an above average price. Got it. Cool. Well, I'm going to put this list in the description, so be sure to check that out. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us here today. Hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us. Uh, go to quickfs.net to sign up to get access to 20-year financial data that you could pull in an Excel spreadsheet. It makes things uh, really efficient and quick, and it's a nice uh, you know, visual that it, it creates for you, and you don't have to do any sort of number entering or anything. Um, so go to quickfs.net to sign up for that and tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. I'll thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next podcast.